Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Good to begin the morning by looking to the Word of God together. And in this interregnum between finishing Leviticus and beginning anew after the first of the year, we're taking a look at some of the parables of Jesus and intentionally trying to look at them a little sideways in order to understand, perhaps in a new way, what Jesus is up to. Uh, in the telling of a parable or parables. And we'll be turning to Luke 15 in the course of this morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer and we'll get underway. Father, we're so thankful that on this beautiful autumn morning with the sun breaking forth so brightly, Father, we understand the metaphor found throughout your word of the Holy Scriptures is light. And so, Father, we pray that the light of your word would break forth just as powerfully and unmistakably as the, the light of the sun around us on this bright Sunday morning. And we pray this knowing that you will do it because you are faithful to your word. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Evangelicals understand because of a high view of Scripture. So we, the good thing about the evangelical understanding of Scripture is it begins with a high view of Scripture. As a matter of fact, when a truly, authentically evangelical understanding of Scripture is codified, that is to say, when intellectual energy is put into defining what it actually means, we find ourselves referring to attributes of Scripture such as inerrant, infallible, um, unbroken, uh, inspired, but not only that, uh, but verbally inspired. One of the reasons those particular attributes are so fast to us is because in the modern age, what we know as theological liberalism has denied those very attributes. And so the, the attributes of Scripture that uh, the anti-supernatural movement of the 19th and 20th centuries directed at Scripture was to try to say, okay, uh, scripture is ancient Near Eastern literature. As a matter of fact, some of the academic departments were changed from the Department of Biblical Studies or the Department of, uh, of Old Testament and New Testament Studies to the Department of A-N-E, or Ancient Near Eastern Literature. It's a way of saying, we're, we're going here from theologists to anthropology. We're not, we're not going to make any assumptions about the uh, propositional truth of what's contained within the, the, this supposed scripture. This is simply going to be a history of religions kind of approach, and this is the scripture of this people, and it is a genre or a subset of ancient Near Eastern literature. But that's not where we can begin. We understand that from the very beginning, we are taught by Christ himself in scripture and instructed by scripture to read it as the very word of God, to understand that it is nothing other than that. And since the liberals sought primarily to deny the propositional truth of Scripture, evangelicals just understandably, even to maintain footing or equilibrium, have pushed back mainly on that in order to say, no, we actually believe and must believe the propositional truth statements in Scripture. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Mary was conceived. Jesus was conceived within Mary uh, by the Holy 
Spirit or the, the, the King James, Holy Ghost, you look at this and you recognize, okay, those are propositional statements. It's our job to make very clear we believe those propositional statements and they were intended to be taken as propositional statements, which they clearly were, and we are, uh, we are gladly obliged to believe them. So you're wondering why all that? Well, it is because that sometimes leads evangelicals to think that all we're looking for in Scripture is a propositional statement. All we're looking for is a statement like we would find uh, indeed in the Gospels about Jesus or a statement from Jesus or any kind of statement. In the Old or New Testaments, we're, we're looking for propositional truth. We're, we're looking for this happened there. This miracle occurred here. We're looking for these are the words of Jesus spoken there. Now, there's a propositional background to every text. For one thing, we're talking about the parables. We are talking about the fact that Jesus actually spoke these parables exactly as we are receiving them. So that's, that's a statement. But the point is this. We sometimes flatten everything into a proposition when that injures our understanding of the text. And so we need to take the text, taking Scripture as the inerrant and fallible Word of God, we need to take it as it comes to us in literary form. Because it's not by accident. As a matter of fact, Jesus spoke parables. And uh, when Jesus spoke parables, he was using a literary form, very common in the first century, but he was using it in a particular way. Now, the parable form is found just about everywhere in every culture. In the Greeks, you find it. You have to talking about Aesop's fables. Uh, those are parables because they're not just little stories. They're stories with a point, right? They have a meaning, and, and, and that meaning is something that even can be inculcated in children. We've talked about the fact before that the fairy tales of medieval Europe served in the same kind of function. Uh, they were not primarily morality tales, by the way. The, the fairy tales of, uh, of medieval Europe were safety tales. Does that make any sense? Hansel and Gretel, Little Red Riding Hood, don't go off with strangers, don't go into the dark Thuringian forest alone as children. Uh, they're safety tales. In other words, just, just told to children to frighten them from doing such things as wandering in the forest or going off with strangers, okay? The parables of Jesus are often just heard as that kind of parable. The point is they are parables, but they're a particular kind of parable. We saw last week from Matthew chapter 13 that Jesus said that he spoke in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus told parables primarily so that those that did see would see more clearly and perhaps so that some that do not see might see. And by the way, it might not be exactly when they hear it. It might be later. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus made very clear the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit over the heart. Now that, that's the parable of the sower and the soils. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Well, if that's all there is to it, why preach? Well, because the preaching of the word is, as the reformers clearly understood, the means whereby God calls those whom he has called. It's by the preaching of the scripture. And so, you know, someone asked me in a preaching class one time, so are you preaching the Scripture only to the elect? And the answer is you're preaching the Scripture to whoever is there. 
that the elect will be grounded in Scripture and that if there are some in the elect who have not yet confessed Christ, then the Word will draw them in such a way that they will. The preaching of the Word is the means of grace. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That's what we pray for when we preach the Word. Well, as we look at the parables of Jesus found here in Luke 15, it is very easy to assume these are safety tales, these are morality parables, this is a, these are interesting stories, there's a conventional wisdom here that's encapsulated and uh, perhaps even in a concentrated form, but uh, nothing too threatening here, nothing too dangerous here. These are parables of Jesus. Don't worry, we're safe. Well, I'm going to suggest we're not. In Luke 15, we begin with these words, how the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him, and they came near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, okay, so just don't ever forget verse 1 as you're hearing anything else in Luke chapter 15, because Luke 1 tells us that the Pharisees and the tax collectors, the worst of the worst sinners, were coming near, near Jesus. Near's a problem. Because remember, the first century Judaism holiness code was one of separating from those who were sinful. That's one of the ways they maintained in their own minds their, uh, their godly status was by maintaining distance. So one of the first things you see in this parable passage is the fact that Jesus is offending the, the Pharisees by his proximity to sinners. And they are coming near him to hear him. We were just talking about the means of grace. The scripture is the means of grace. Jesus is teaching as a means of grace. And, and at the very least, if they are not yet drawn to him, they are drawn to his preaching. They have not just come near him, they have come near to hear him, according to verse 1. Now, anyone who understands the scripture and understands the gospel would say that's a very good thing right? That, that's, that's a wonderful thing. People who need Christ are coming near him to hear him. Pharisees don't like it. This man receives sinners and eats with them. All right, now notice something else. As you look to verse 3, there's a so. So he told them this parable. So it's not like, all right, Jesus had a parable bank, and uh, this is just the next one in the series. No, Jesus told these parables in Luke 15 with a particular purpose. So he told them this parable, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he comes together. he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So it's a simple parable of a, of a lost sheep. And, and this, is where, this is where we have to be very careful because one of the things we're looking at, and, and no doubt you're familiar with these parables, and I've made reference to them before, but what I want us to see this morning is how an evangelical understanding of Scripture and an evangelical understanding of parables means that one of the things we need to do 
is to stop ourselves from thinking we think we know what's going on until we actually know what's going on. So, right here, what is the evangelical problem? The evangelical problem is that when we hear sheep, we think church. When, when we hear sheep, we hear an entire series of biblical metaphors uh, built around sheep. And then, of course, we also have in mind the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd, as the Gospel of John tells us, that the church is his flock. And so uh, we, we, we have a domestic, even congregational picture when we hear the word sheep. But sometimes sheep are just sheep. And in this case, the sheep are just sheep. So don't think church at this point. Just think sheep. Jesus tells the parable, this is a man that has a lot of sheep, or at least has the responsibility for a lot of sheep. And he has a hundred of them and lost one of them. Which one among you, if he has a hundred and lost one, would not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? Well, here, here again... What if I were to say to you, which one of you who, finding a million dollars, would not just leave it where it is and go on with your life? In other words, you, you sound that, well, that is not what I would do. That is not at all what I would do. That's not what any sane person would do. That's actually the point here. So this tells us another clue. And this is not true of every series of parables told by Jesus. It's not true of every parable individually told by Jesus. But it is certainly true of these three, and the context makes it clear, Jesus is being a bit snarky here. Jesus is putting quite a curve or quite an edge on his teaching here. Now, we don't know that he had any edge at all when he was talking to the Pharisees and the tax collectors who had come near him to hear him. They're not the ones that were complaining. It's the Pharisees who were complaining that he was allowing the sinners to come near him. And so Jesus says, okay, boys, you got a problem with that? Let me tell you a little story. It's a story about lostness and foundness. It's a story about a shepherd who has 100 sheep and has lost one of them and leaves the 99 in the open pasture and goes after the other one that was lost until he finds it. Okay, here's the problem. And here's the snark. This is insanity. Jesus is not unaware of how shepherding is done. No one in the first century would have been unaware of how shepherding was done, even if their main responsibility wasn't shepherding. The point is this. There isn't a shepherd on earth who has any sheep who would leave 99 in the open pasture to go after one that was lost. It makes no sense whatsoever. And it's loaded. Again, there is snark in here. It's not just leaving the 99 in the care of his associate. It's leaving the 99 in the pasture, in the open pasture, okay? So in other words, that is the one thing no shepherd would ever do. And so anyone who knows anything about shepherding would look at that and say, this is insane. And the way Jesus sets it up is, what men among you would not do this? As if this is the common way, this is just common sense. I, I am, what I'm doing is explained just as easily as a man leaving 99 sheep in the open pasture to go after one which is lost. It makes that much sense. Well, it makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever. If you leave 99 
sheep in the open pasture without a shepherd to go after one sheep that was lost, you do not have one lost sheep. You have 100 lost sheep. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is getting the attention of the Pharisees about how important the lost is. The lost sheep has his paramount importance. At least the paramount importance of the shepherd. This shepherd is going to go after the lost one. Now, there are a lot of ways that someone hearing this parable in the first century might later have thought about it. Later. Probably not at the time. Because it's just, that's the other thing we are. We're the kind of people who get a conversation. And I don't know. I don't, maybe this happens to wives. I don't know. I don't know. A wife can speak to the wife experience. I can speak to the husband experience. Which is that hours after a conversation, driving down the road, I go, oh, that's what she meant. My eyes open in the middle of the night and I go, oh, that was, that was it. Acted like I understood at the time. <laughs> Actually, only you know, some hours later do I understand what that was. That's who she was talking about. It just, I mean, only to honor my sweet wife. It's just, it's just we think differently. And I, I have that aha moment. Sometimes you may have had that in study in a certain discipline. And uh, someone asked me, and they said, you know, about one thing. I was in the eighth grade. I was in an advanced, too advanced algebra class. And at the beginning of the class, I didn't understand any of it. And at the end of the class, I understood a lot of it. But I have no idea when I learned any of it. It's just the mystery of learning and how in the way our, how in the world our minds work. Jesus is making a point about this very intentional shepherd who cares about that one sheep so much that he's going to go find it. And then there's another pattern that becomes very evident here, and you perhaps know it already, and that is this. Jesus says, and when he has found it, in verse 5, he lays it on his shoulders, that's a very pastoral thing, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he tells, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. I tell you, just so, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now here again, we've got to be careful. We don't do systematic theology by parable. We just don't. The parables illustrate biblical truths. They don't, they don't give us a propositional doctrine. Jesus is not here saying that the 99 never need repentance. Just talking about the fact that these 99 are in the fold. It's the one sheep that is lost that he is determined to find, to redeem, to claim, soter, to save. And when he has found it, he rejoices greatly, and he shares this news with his friends. And by the way, there's another literary insight here. It's, it's the friends who reveal themselves as friends because they celebrate. That, that turns out to be another very important issue. If I'm that happy because of a good thing, and you refuse to share my happiness, then you are not my friend. 
I don't have to have a friend meter to figure that out. If you would rather bad things happen to me than good things happen to me, you're not my friend. If when bad things happen to me, and this is found throughout the Old Testament, when bad things happen to me and you don't mourn, you're not my friend. When good things happen with me and you do not rejoice, you're not my friend. So it turns out the shepherd knows who his friends are because his friends are those who celebrate with him. Hold on to that. That's going to be very important. So we got, we got several groups here. We got sheep, 199. We got Pharisees on the one hand. We have sinners and tax collectors on the other hand. Turns out to be really important. Very interesting. Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep. And then there is no literary break. So it's not like some breathing space was given between the first two parables. The second one, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Even so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, something else we have to watch is we don't want to be inattentive to the details of the parable. On the other hand, the parables are not to be remembered because of the detail, but because of the power of the story. So I've heard a lot of people say, look, the big issue here is that the central character is a woman. It's a woman looking for a coin. But that's actually to overtort that issue. It is true that in the heroic literature of the ancient world, the, uh, the heroes are ge generally, I mean, even by the word, which is a masculine word, uh, they are generally men. It's a, it's, a, it's a culture in the ancient world that called out male heroism. But women are not absent from the narratives of the ancient literature, and they're not absent from the Old Testament. They're certainly not absent from the Scripture, and they're not absent from domestic situations in which if you're trying to understand something, and a parable, as we said last week, is something said alongside, it's a literary metaphor. If you understand this, then maybe you'll understand that. Then the fact that this is a woman is not the main point. It may be her dowry. None of that really matters. What matters is she had 10 coins, she lost one of them. And by the way, that is not a male-female habit or predicament, I think. I just know that I set things down, move on, and forget where I've set them. So I'm frustrated because I spend an inordinate amount of my time looking for things. It drives me crazy. It's not economical. About a year ago, I was involved in a frantic series of events. And in that series of events, Mary said, what are you looking for? And I said, my reading glasses. I said, I know I set them over there, and now I can't find them. She said, sweetheart, they're in your hand. And that's when I thought, okay, we're at the edge of something here. This is, uh, <laughs> this is, this is a warning. We've got to slow down a little bit. Thought, Yikes, they're in my hand. Uh, yes, they were, actually. This woman is frantic to find one of her lost coins. And uh, 
You know, you don't have to overtorque this again. Maybe that's her dowry. Maybe that's all she has. Obviously, it's a value. She wants to find it. Well, all right. So she finds it. And you have a very short parable here. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So there's actually something very interesting. The fact that that's repeated in the short version of this more concise parable, at the end of the first pericope, the end of the first parable, we're told that there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents when one sheep is found. And now the joy in heaven is amplified at the end of this very short second parable in Luke chapter 15. And so here's something else. Here's what only Jesus can tell. So th- this, is, this is something we ought to pause and think about for a moment. Because if I get up to tell you a parable, and let's say, let's say that you find them so helpful that you collect them in a book entitled Bowler's Parables. I know you're working on it. And, uh, you know, like the, the sayings of Chairman Mao or Ben Franklin's aphorisms. You know, people just write them down. Well, here's the thing. And let me be clear, I'm not comparing myself to Chairman Mao. Just, just in case there's anyone wondering. The point is, this isn't a human author. This is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of the living God, in perfect communion with the Father. When he tells us what causes rejoicing in heaven, he is giving us a view from the throne of God's righteousness about what causes rejoicing in heaven. There's not an earthly preacher who has any competence to speak of that at all. So this isn't just a rabbi telling parables. This is the incarnate Christ speaking in parables. Lostness found us rejoicing. And the lostness and the foundness and the rejoicing is not just an earthly issue with an earthly consequence. It's a heavenly consequence with eternal significance. So you have a shepherd who comes home with the lamb over his shoulders. You have a woman who holds up a lost coin that she had lost, and it becomes the focus of this rejoicing. And and thus, it turns out that the issue of lostness and foundness is a profound picture of something. We better figure out what it's a profound picture of. Now, it's interesting in the transition here. As you look at, uh, at Luke chapter 15, after the first two parables... Beginning in verse 11, we have three words in most English translations, and he said. Now, in one sense, that is just an introductory statement of a a new pericope, just to give a little intellectual break, but it really helps us in this context to know when we have here, and he said, that is within this context a literary clue that this is where he was headed all along. So Jesus told the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the lost sheep. And then he said, now this follows other literary conventions you'll find in the first century or for that matter now. Uh, 
more common than finding two stories together is finding three stories together. And a part of it is because of what is called the, 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 the triple escalation. And so you see this. You see this often in, in narrative. So you get a you know, smaller story, bigger story, far bigger story. But that's not exactly what's going on here because the middle story is actually smaller than the first story. But the point is, the third story is going to be the big story. It's just like in... Uh, in rhetoric, sometimes you hear this in preaching, but going back to classical rhetoric, if, you, if you're going to present something, the most effective, efficient means of presenting it is in three points. And if you're going to do that, and you know that, the most important point, the most memorable point, will be your last point. And so, if you're using that rhetorical device of speaking in thirds with three points, then you know, the biggest point you want to make is your third point. In this case, the two smaller parables are introductory. They're like one punch, two punch for the big punch. It's much a lengthier as, as a passage, just as you look at it. And you know it, so we'll read it quickly. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is one of the two most famous parables of Jesus in almost every Culture that receives the gospel and knows the New Testament, the parable of the Good Samaritan and the parable of the Prodigal Son are the two kind of central parable columns that, uh, that people know. I'm not sure why that's so, by the way. I'll be honest. I, I'm not sure if it's because of the sheer magnitude of the parable or because of the theological, moral power of the parable, I tend to think it's the latter. I think it's the, I think it's the sheer power of this uh, very surprising story. And you know enough to know how absolutely offensive the first part of this parable is. There's no provision in ancient Israel for a son 
to demand an inheritance while his father's alive. It's, it, it's not there. And Israel is an honor culture. It's a hierarchical honor culture. And so the idea that a son would go to the father and say, look, I'd be better off if you were dead, so let's just treat you as dead, and why don't you give me the inheritance that's coming to me? It is an arrogance that is beyond description, and there is no room in Israel for that kind of hierarchical, patriarchal disrespect, much less the fact that the father cooperates with it. So don't over-torque every single element of a parable because then the parable doesn't work. The point is, this younger son is so rebellious that he clearly believes the one purpose in life from which he can, he can bring his escape is, is what we might now call the worldview of autonomous individualism, which has so infected our culture. I just want to be me, and so long as I'm your son and the, eld, and the younger brother of you know, Sir Older One, I will never be who I am. I need to be free, and, and I, it's, it's hard to be free and out of money, so why don't you give me what's coming to me? Now, there's a lot of theology here, of course, because as you know, Old Testament examples and Old Testament models, this basically is a form of patricide. But again, don't overtorque it because the father's still alive. Why the father cooperated with this, no one knows. But basically, the young man gains his inheritance and then runs off with it. And he runs off with it and he spends it prodigally. Now, we don't know what he did with it, but whatever it was, it was wasteful. That's the main word Jesus uses of how the young man lives. Uh, he, he spends it in, in loose living, but the main thing is it's loose spending. The elder brother later tells you some things that he did with the money, including prostitutes and all the rest. But actually, the father makes no such indictment, and Jesus makes no, 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 gives us no such information in this first part. Being, being a spendthrift is enough to illustrate what sinners do with sin. You run right through everything you demanded and you've got nothing to show for it. And you're so hungry. And, and here's the Jewish angle because you know, Jesus really is setting the torque in this story really high. Jesus says he is so hungry that he's jealous of the pigs and he's feeding the pigs. Now, you don't have to know a whole lot about kosher Jewish background to know this is utter degradation. This is, this is, this is abject humiliation. This man has now had to sell himself out as a servant to a Gentile and he has a lower status and he has less food than the swine he is tending and feeding. There's, there's no picture of degradation imaginable to the Jewish mind, so much so that this will be so offensive that looking at how first century uh, Jews uh, responded to an offensive story, they generally scoffed and walked away in anger. You know, we will not hear this. We will not hear this. Well, they evidently stayed around to hear what Jesus was doing with this. And again, we don't over-torque it. We're not, it's not the details. The details are interesting. They help us to understand the tension and, and, and the stakes, but don't try to make all the, all the parts 
you know, become something of a symbol or a metaphor for something else. Taken at face value, the story is more powerful than we can handle. Because we clearly understand it's a picture about us. I mean, we don't have to figure that out. I trust. The believers, we have to understand this is, this, is, this is us. Every single one of us is this boy. Every single one of us. This is what Genesis 3 looks like. Genesis 3 is all sheep going astray, each one to his own way. That's what it looks like. This is what sin looks like. This is what rebellion looks like. This is what, and by the way, sin ends up being attempted fratricide. It, it's denying God as God. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a horrible a patricide. I, 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 it's, a, it's a horrible picture. But it's a short parable, and the parable's getting somewhere. So without dwelling too much longer on the first part, what's important for us to see is, in verse 25, the surprise comes, because if you follow the, the, the structure of parable one, lost sheep, parable two, lost coin, Parable three, much more extensive, lost boy. Then the parable's over, but it's not over. Now his younger son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your father has come, and your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and his town. Now, my guess is that the first major category error for this parable is not one that you are tempted to make. So, and that first category error, common to early Christian readers more than to you or to me, would be somehow reading the elder brother as Judaism and the younger brother as Christianity. Don't do that. It doesn't work uh, because Jesus is not saying of Israel, hey, you're just fine. He's actually saying the opposite. He's saying no one's fine. As the Old Testament tells us, you'll remember all we like sheep have gone astray. We've each gone our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is no unlost sheep. All the sheep are lost. All the coins are lost in this sense. And all the sons are lost. All of them. Sons and daughters alike, we're lost. The difference is between the lost who know they're lost and those who don't know they're lost and the lost who are lost and stay lost and the lost who are found. Lostness found is rejoicing. The Father rejoices. That, that, that's the thing. We were told heaven rejoices and here the father rejoices. That's absolutely right. That's following the sequence. That's the climax of rejoicing. The climax of the rejoicing is it was, it was friends of a shepherd, friends of a woman. Now it's God, the father, 
who rejoices. We're told rejoicing in heaven. Okay, rejoicing in heaven starts at the top. The glory of the redeeming God. That's where we see the greatest satisfaction is this father. And he's the father. He's sovereign. He can do what he wants to do. He, remember, the boy says, I'm going to make him a proposal. I come back as his slave. And then the apostle Paul picks up on this. And he says, for we in our redemption are not saved as slaves. We're not, we're not in a spirit of slavery. He'll use the word slave in a positive way about, about obedience and, and, and about discipleship. But his point is, we're not given the status of a slave. We're given the status of sons. We are joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted as his brothers and sisters by the atonement accomplished and the obedience of the Son to the glory of the Father and the economy of the Holy Trinity. I'm rejoicing. I mean, I hope you're rejoicing because this is not just about this boy lost, found, redeemed. It's about you and it's about me as believers, lost, found, and redeemed. And it's about the church, lost, found, redeemed, rejoicing. And there's rejoicing in heaven. There should be rejoicing right here, except where there's not. So it turns out that just to make this quick, the elder brother is kind of the point. And then you realize it started out with those who were complaining about Jesus receiving sinners, and it ends with one complaining about Jesus receiving sinners. A elder brother who, by the way, we, don't, we have no idea if the younger son spent money on prostitutes. Uh, Jesus didn't tell us that in the parable in terms of the actual background. And how this elder brother would know, we don't know. But you know what? Sinners sin, but other sinners imagine yet other sinners sinning, sinning even more than they sin. <laughs> in other words, just, I'm not, I don't want to bring in Freud as a Bible scholar here, but there's a little projection that you can kind of see in this passage, and sometimes you can in a Christian conversation as well. But the point is this, the elder brother will not come in, or at least he doesn't, or at least we don't know. But we do know that the father says that if you do not join the rejoicing, it is not that he is not my son, but that you are not my son. This isn't about a lost son. This is about two lost sons. It's also about the father's entreaty, not only to the Gentiles, but also Jesus' entreaty, I mean to say, not, not only to the Gentiles, but, but also to the Jews. Indeed, first to the Jews. And the Pharisees are defined in just this way. Jesus is issuing an invitation to the Pharisees and we have no idea in this passage how they respond to the invitation. Just as the father goes out to the older brother, Jesus is here talking to the Pharisees as much as he is to the tax collectors. But the tax collectors are coming to him knowing their sin. The Pharisees are standing off thinking they're just fine. The parable ends with, not what will the Father do. The parable is left not with what will Jesus do. The parable is left with what will the Pharisees do. And you don't have to wait long in the Gospel of Luke to find out what they will do. But it leaves us with this magnificent series of parables in which we are reminded of what is always at stake in the preaching of the Gospel. We preach the Gospel the, 
The best word for it is promiscuously. That's a, that's a good 18th century Baptist word for the preaching of the gospel. We preach it promiscuously. It's the only kind of promiscuity we're called to. We preach it everywhere to all people. Sinner, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Come home. Ye who are sinners, come home. So that's the task of the church, is to present the gospel and call people to come home, to repent of their sins, but it's not done until the church rejoices. And the church that doesn't rejoice, it turns out, isn't a church. So rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for this passage that shocks us every time we read it. And we learn more every time we hear it. And Father, we pray we will live more faithfully every time we think about it. Thank you for giving not only those who heard these parables for the first time, these remarkable texts. Thank you for giving it to us, to your church forever. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.